Psalm 70, you can take your Bible this morning and turn it to Psalm 70. And I'd like for us again to pray as we uh, as we uh, begin this morning. And then we'll read together, or well, yeah, we'll read all together, I think, the five verses of Psalm 70. Uh, and uh, then we'll get into uh, our message this morning. So let's pray together. And let's ask God's help as we study His Word uh, to teach us and to help us to understand what He has for us today. Heavenly Father, we again are coming to you this morning thankful uh, because You have spoken to us. Uh, Not with a voice calling out from heaven that we can hear, but instead, and maybe certainly more, um, more effectively, You've spoken to us through Your Word. You've recorded for us the pages of Scripture, the perfect Word of God, that we can know the truth that You have for us. And of course, You've spoken to us by Your Son, whom You sent, so that when we see Jesus Christ, we have seen the Father. I thank You, Lord, for that truth, and I pray that You'd help us as we read Your Word, as we study it this morning, as we consider it, that You would make it very clear to us pray that you'd give us hearts that would be willing and to submit and surrender to the truth. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit to take your word and to apply it to our hearts today in the way that we need to each one. I pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 70. Would you read with me? Uh, as we begin, and you can read it aloud with me this morning. Have the words up on the screen if you need them, or you have them in there in your Bible. Psalm 70, it's just five verses, so read aloud with me if you would. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to help me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This psalm is intriguing to me on several levels. One thing that's really interesting about Psalm 70 is it's almost an exact copy of Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17. And I didn't put anything on the screen for you today for it, but uh, in in my study this week, I, I, I lined up the two passages side by side and compared word for word to see exactly what those differences are. And so we might be tempted when we read Psalm 70 to just kind of gloss over it and move on to Psalm 71, because, hey, we already dealt with these verses back in Psalm 40. So what's the big deal? Why are we coming to them again? Of course, you know, when we've been two years in the book of Psalms, you might be thinking, well, let's get this moving, Pastor, and let's get on to the next one. There's no reason for us to bother, right? We've already talked about these. Well, when we compare the two passages of Scripture, though, they are not exactly the same. There are a few differences, and I think 
those differences suggest that something is going on here. Something important is happening here in this passage. When we compare Psalm 70 to Psalm 69, and then again to Psalm 71, because remember, we've done this on several occasions. I've tried to point out to you that the book of Psalms was not haphazardly gathered together. It wasn't randomly put together. These psalms were placed where they're placed for a reason. There was an editor, maybe, maybe several editors, who edited portions of this book. And so whoever it was that did that put this psalm here. And there's a reason, because when you compare it to Psalm 69 and Psalm 71, you see a number of connections, similarities. There's similar themes that kind of appear between Psalm 69, 70, and 71. And there's some terminology that's used that kind of crosses over and makes some connections for us and helps us to see that, okay, there's a reason Psalm 70 is here. It's connected to Psalm 69 and 71. These verses are put here for a reason. Now, it's possible, and I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that the editor, whoever edited this book of Psalms, took the verses from the end of Psalm 40 and put them here because they fit between Psalm 69 and 71. And he he felt that they served a purpose. It may be that it was David himself, that after he'd written Psalm 40 and after he'd written Psalm 69, he may have put this here on purpose to provide a connection. I don't know. I do know this, that that Dr. William Barrick says that Psalm 70 is a very short version of the message of Psalm 69. So if you missed the message last week, well, this is like Psalm 69 in a nutshell. Okay, so there you go. And by the way, we didn't get the recording last week. We had a problem with the microphone, and so we didn't get the recording. So if you missed last week, just get this week, and you can listen to it twice, and it'll count, because it was last week. The same message. But then when we get to the end of Psalm 71... And you you read the last verses of Psalm 71, you realize that it's almost as if Psalm 71 is evidence that God heard and answered the prayer of Psalm 70. Because Psalm 71 kind of comes back with some of the same terminology and says, oh God, you heard that and you did it, just like I asked. And so clearly there's connections here between Psalm 69, 70, and 71. So it gives us reason to realize that Psalm 70 is here in this place, at this point in the Psalter, for a reason. And therefore, we are not going to skip it or gloss over it. Instead, we're going to study it and ask that question. What's the point? Why is it here? What is it communicating to us? And there is something, I think, very important here in Psalm 70. Because if I didn't think so, I wouldn't bother getting up in front of you to talk about it today. It's not here by chance. It's here by design, and it's worth our time and our effort to consider. Now, we can outline this psalm very simply. And uh, I'm going to put the outline up here. Uh, I know kids have their sheet to fill out. We're going to come back through the outline as we go. So if you don't get it all written down right away, that's okay. Uh, Don't try to, don't freak out, okay? Uh, The outline of this is very simple. Verse 1 is a cry cry of desperation. He moves on in verses 2 and 3 to to, to offer a plea for justice. And then in verse 4, it's a plea for worship. And then in verse 5, he returns again to that same theme, the cry of desperation. Now, as you can see from the outline, a key theme of this psalm is the urgency of David's prayer the desperation that he felt. And so, if I could say it in a sentence, 
It would be this, the urgency of the psalmist's need translates into the fervency of his prayer. The urgency of his need translates into the fervency of his prayer. Now I would like to just walk through these five verses together for a few minutes and then consider what the application is for us today from this psalm. The psalm begins in a very abbreviated fashion. It is this cry of desperation. David says here, make haste, right? Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Now, it's interesting when we compare verse 1 of Psalm 70 to Psalm 40 and verse 13. Remember, I said they're almost an exact copy. Almost, but not quite. We see that the first two words are different if we were to compare them. In Psalm 40, it says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. But here in Psalm 70, it says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. The verb, be pleased, that's used in Psalm 40 is missing here. In fact, there is no verb here at the beginning of the verse. If you notice in, your New King James, in the New King James, I think the Old King James says the same thing, make haste, and it's in italics. Anybody notice that in your Bible? That make haste there at the beginning of the verse is in italics? That tells you something. It tells you that the translators inserted the words make haste but there's no corresponding word in the Hebrew to support it. They felt like it made more sense to put that here than to do without it. They felt like it was implied in the context. Most of the versions that I checked this week, most of the versions that I looked at, and I looked at several, use that. And they insert make haste or something very close to that in this place. But there's no verb in the Hebrew at all. Those words are in italics, they're added for clarity. But the original text, the first clause of, verb, of verse 1 has no verb, which is kind of interesting because verbs give us action, right? And so we need action. What are we supposed to do? What's he asking for? What's he, what's he asking God to do? And that's why our translators have put the words make haste, because they see it in the second half of the verse, and they say, well, that's... That, that's what he's asking God to do. Hurry up! Okay? And then he's putting this in here. But we could follow uh, a more cryptic translation. All right, One of the authors I read this week offers this translation, and I think it's very helpful. Think about verse 1 in this way. David starts off his prayer, and here's what he says. God, to, to deliver me. Yahweh, to my help. Hurry! That's verse 1. God, to deliver me. Yahweh, to my help. Hurry! This is such a desperate situation. The need is so urgent that David can't even be troubled to do what he did in Psalm 40 and say, God, if it pleases you, please come and help me. No, no, no. He skips over the if it pleases you part because it's so urgent and so desperate. All he can do is cry out, God, come and help me and hurry. And the psalm really takes off like a rocket and it doesn't slow down. The abruptness with which David starts his prayer, I think, is important. It reminds us something. It ought to remind us something about prayer. You know this to be true if you've been in church for any length of time, but I'm going to tell you again because you need to be reminded of it. I need to be reminded of it. That prayer is not made effective by its eloquence. Prayer is made effective by its object. 
The psalmist here is in such a tight spot, such a desperate spot, that he has to abbreviate this prayer that's already pretty short from Psalm 40. I think that says something to us. He feels a sense of urgency, the weight of the clock as it ticks away the seconds, and he waits for God to act. And each moment that passes, the situation seems more desperate, and he cries out louder and with more strenuous effort, God, help me now! And this this gives us a little bit of a sense of just how tight the spot is that he's in. Just how little time or energy he has to prepare a proper prayer. But what is a proper prayer anyways? I mean, does it matter whether we include these and thous in our prayers? Do we need to always include the different elements of prayer? I don't know if you've ever learned about that before. I did a Google search this week, and oh, what are the elements of prayer? And there's a bunch of different, you know, different people have different lists. Some people say there's four elements, five elements, six elements. It's very popular to teach a method of prayer that uses four elements. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's an acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, supplication, or thanksgiving, supplication. And they say, well, see, when you pray, you know, you should spend some time in adoration and praising and adoring God. And then you should spend some time in confessing your sin. And then you should spend some time giving thanks to God for all that He's done. And then, it, then, and then after you've done all those things, then bring your supplications and make your requests to God. Well, when we pray, do we always have to follow that pattern? You know? Is it, is it ever proper to just cry out, God, to deliver me? Yahweh, to my help, hurry! I think it is. I think it's appropriate sometimes to pray like David is praying here. We don't always have to pray a long, drawn-out prayer where we include all sorts of theological references and we, you know, we, 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 we scrape the heavens for the majesty of God and we speak of the, you know, we, we draw from the gutters for our sinfulness and we bring all these things in and, listen, that's fine, but that's, that's not what's happening here because there's no time for it. David is in, a, is in a bind, he's in a spot, he has an urgent need and so he cries out to the Lord, he even abbreviates what he says, He cuts it down as small as he can make it because the urgency of the moment demands this kind of prayer. The point isn't that David's prayer was carefully thought out, theologically rich, linguistically diverse. I chose that on purpose because I thought it was kind of fun to talk about how how linguistically diverse his prayer is not. It's not filled with poetic imagery. The point is that for David, when things got desperate, he cried out for help. And he cried out to Yahweh, to the Lord God. Prayer that is fervent and honest in simple language is far more effective and fitting than prayer that is formal yet impersonal or aloof. Just Consider the difference between your child's cry of pain and a formal letter from your son or daughter requesting your consideration of their discomfort in the present circumstances. Which one moves you more? Which one is is taken more seriously? When you hear the pain and the fear in your child's voice, you act. That's what parents do, right? 
It compels you. It's urgent. And as a father or mother, you feel you have to do something. This is the thing about babies crying that I, I've never, ever been able to get used to. I remember when Michael was born and we read some stuff that said, you know, you should let them cry for however long, you know, lay them in their crib and just let them cry it out. <laughs> I can't do that. That drives me nuts. I mean, there's just, there's a, t- there's a pitch and a tone and something about the cry. I, it's like, you know, it's almost like going to the dentist. I just can't handle that. Okay? I can't. I can't just sit here and listen to it. That, I've got to move. I've got to do something. I'm thankful for my wife. My wife is the same way. So we don't just sit there and, ah, just let them cry it out. They'll get used to it. No. As parents, when we hear the cry, we're moved by the pain, by the cry, by the anxiety. That urgency compels us to move. That's what's going on here. And we need to remember that when it comes to prayer. We need to stop worrying about how our prayer sounds, about whether we've got the right words, about whether other people will be impressed with what we're saying, and we simply need to pray. When the situation is desperate, you need to cry out to God with a fervency that matches your desperation. That's what we find here in Psalm 70. But I do want to notice here that he, he does give us a little bit of the content of prayer here. I want to look at what he prays. Because it's not just a, 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 a cry for help. It's not just a desperate plea. There is something here to it. He's asking for something specific. The content of his prayer in verses 2 and 3, we talk here about a plea for justice. He speaks here of his rescue of the help that he's asking for in terms of not how it plays out for him, but how it plays out for his enemies. They've got plans for David. They want his life. They want to see him hurt. They want to be able to gossip about him. That expression that he uses here, he says that that there are those who say, aha, aha. Well, in a way... It's almost like they're wanting to say, oh, isn't it just too bad about David? Haven't you heard what's happened to David? These are cruel enemies. Remember what we read about in Psalm 69. He says, they gave me gall in my food and vinegar to drink for my thirst. These were not people that had any any compassion for him whatsoever. When he was suffering, they were all too ready to give him some vinegar. Let's just add to the suffering. Let's rub salt in the wound. That's kind of the picture that we get from Psalm 69. Again, remember there's consistency here, Psalm 70. These enemies are vicious people. They have no compassion for him. They are cruel. They are working hard to try to bring about his humiliation, his disgrace, and ultimately his destruction. That's what they're after. But his concern here is that God intervened to thwart their plans. I think it's interesting, right? They they seek his life. He goes through and he kind of lists these things. They seek his life in verse 2. And what does he ask for? He prays that they'll be disappointed. Well, I would pray that too, right? Somebody's out to get me. Lord, just disappoint them. I don't want that to work, right? Just, I'm good with that. I can understand that. They seek his hurt. 
And what does he pray? He prays, Lord, send them back. Turn them around and make them confused. I'm with them on that one. He's not praying for courage or strength to fight them. He's not saying, Lord, let me go out to battle and defeat these people. He's saying, Lord, let, let it never come to that. They're trying to get after me. Lord, just, just confuse their plans. Turn them around. Disturb them. Confound them. And of course, there in verse 3, he talks there about that, their desire to mock him and to laugh at his disgrace. And his prayer is that they would be the ones who are put to shame. They want to gossip. But the reward of their gossip is that they become objects of ridicule themselves. It's a, it's a poetic irony here. There's no sense of revenge or hatred or bitterness from David here. He's just asking that justice be done. That's what he's saying. Each one of his prayer requests, I think, has a delicious kind of irony in that it involves God turning their own sinful actions back on them. Their hatred, their thirst for violence will leave them unsatisfied and always disappointed. Their desire to see him suffer in pain will expose them to ridicule and scorn. Their boasting laughter will be rewarded with a humiliating retreat. That's what David is praying for. That's what he's confident of. Charles Spurgeon comments here, he says, Rest assured, the enemies of Christ and his people shall have wages for their work. They shall be paid in their own coin. They loved scoffing, and they shall be filled with it. Yea, they shall become a proverb and a byword forever. This is the justice that David longs to see so urgently. This is what he's praying for. And he moves on in verse 4 here and he offers what I call a plea for worship. He's focusing now from moving from justice for his foes to the glory of God. It's not that he's offering praise and worship here necessarily in verse 4. What he's doing is he's praying... He's praying that others would find God and glorify Him through these circumstances. He's praying that in the midst of what's taking place in his life, the trial that he's in, the the oppression and the suffering that he's going through, that other people would, would come to see and know God and give God glory. That's what David's prayer is here. I'm just astounded. Again, last week I mentioned this and commented on it. I think it's amazing to me that in the middle of such a desperate situation, David's focus is not on himself. David's focus is on the Lord and on other people, and he desires that others would come to know God, would be strengthened in their faith, and would be able to worship and praise and honor God through his suffering. That's David's prayer, and it astounds me. He prays that those who seek God, he says, would rejoice. That they would be glad. Why would those who seek God rejoice and be glad? Well, very simply because they find what they're seeking, right? I mean, think about it in these terms for a minute. What about 
Uh, how do you respond when you are searching for just the right gift or, or a lost piece of jewelry or you're searching for a true friend and you find what you're searching for? How much do you rejoice? How glad are you when you finally find what you've been searching for? So when he says that those who search for God, who seek God, would rejoice, he's saying that they find you and rejoice in you. He's talking here about them finding God. He prays that those who seek the Lord would find Him. And more than that, in the second half of the verse, he prays that those who have tasted of the grace of God, he says those who love your salvation, they would shout together, let God be magnified. Of course, that's set very much in contrast here with what David's enemies shout, right? Aha, aha. Spurgeon says they sound like barking dogs. And in contrast to the barking of a dog, the believer who is rescued sings to the Lord. That's the contrast that David offers here. That's what his hope is. That's what his prayer is. I would say it this way to you as well, that it's a fundamental principle of our faith that the man or woman who earnestly desires to know God will not be disappointed. He turns away none who seek after him. There isn't a person alive who genuinely is seeking God and remains in the dark. That's the entire point of the Bible, by the way. What is it? Well, God has revealed Himself to men in the written Word. What's more than that? The point of Jesus Christ coming to earth. We call it the incarnation. When God, who is Spirit took on human flesh, became incarnate, in flesh. When Jesus Christ came to earth and took on human flesh, why did He do that? What was the point? It was just so that when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God the Father. He was coming here to reveal God. God is not far from us. He's not distant and aloof. He's not uncaring. He's not unfeeling. He entered into His creation to seek and to save those who were lost. You see, our problem is not that God is difficult to find. Our problem is not that God has hidden Himself away from all but the, the select few, you know, those who are wise enough or wealthy enough to be able to find Him. That's what a lot of religions teach. If you're wise enough, if you're wealthy enough, you can find God. Well, I'm sorry, that's not true. God is not hidden. He's not far off. He's not difficult to find. Our problem, the reason that we do not find God, is that we do not seek God. That's the truth behind what David is saying here. Because everyone who seeks to know the truth about God will find Him and will rejoice 
when he does. Now how happy is the man or woman who's found God? How happy should we be when we've come to know our Maker? If you've found this most precious treasure, David says here in verse 4, what you ought to do is you ought to say continually, let God be magnified. You ought to be continually making much of God. Magnifying God. Blowing Him up. Making much of Him. Talking of Him. Speaking of His greatness. That ought to be the subject of your speech. If you know Him. If you love His salvation. You ought to speak of God. Knowing God leads us to worship God. It leads us to proclaim and glorify God. It doesn't work the other way around. We don't come to worship and then meet God. Now, let me say that because, because there's a lot of people today that think that's how it works. We're going to go to church to worship and then we're going to have an encounter with God. That's not how it works. You do not worship God if you do not know God. And so we start off by seeking God. And only when we have sought and found God, maybe I should correct how I say that, only when we have sought and been found by God will we worship Him. Can we worship Him? That's how it works. That's what David is saying. Let those who seek you rejoice. They'll find you. Because you'll find them. Now I'm filling in blanks here that David doesn't specify. He doesn't go into the details of that here. And let those who have tasted of your salvation, oh Lord, let them say continually, let God be magnified. Always oh, serve a great God. He's so good. You don't know what He's done for me. This is our God. Let us magnify Him. We search for God, and when He has found us and saved us, we magnify His name. That's how it works. This is what David prays for when he's in distress. That's amazing. Now we get to the final verse. Verse 5, David returns again to his cry of desperation. This all ends in the same way that it began, with a hurried cry for rescue. Twice in this verse, he emphasizes how important it is that God come quickly. Make haste. Don't delay. He confesses here that he's poor and needy. And this way, by the way, doesn't mean that he's financially poor. It's not talking about finances at all. It means that he is at the mercy of his enemies. He is powerless to escape them or overcome them. There's only one place for him to turn, and that's to the Lord. This is the kind of desperation that we need to experience. Because we need to have our hearts turned to God out of necessity rather than convenience. We don't believe in God because it makes us feel good. And we don't believe in God because it makes life easier. We believe in God because we must believe in Him. Because we've come face to face with a reality that we cannot escape. 
The reality is this. We, we find in our own hearts, in our own minds, and in our lives, a corruption, a moral weakness, a rotting stench of perverse desires and imaginations. And the more we try to run from it, the more we realize it's not something that we carry about with us, as if we could set it down and run away from it. It is who we are, and we can't escape it. And so what do we do? Well, many times we indulge ourselves. We have these desires, and we indulge them. But we find that these desires leave us feeling hollow. If they fill us with anything, they fill us with self-loathing. They don't provide any real escape. They don't provide any release from the decay. Instead, they accelerate it. Our lives begin to spiral out of control. Well, we can try to fight it, but when you try to deny who you are, what you are, that's exhausting. After a while, you just give up. We return back to indulging ourselves. And of course, our society helps us along because the world tells us you can't deny who you are. You have to express yourself and fulfill yourself if you want to find happiness. Well, the world says that trying to suppress your natural desires is harmful. You just have to be yourself. Don't apologize for it. But being ourselves is just going around and around, spiraling down and down until life becomes meaningless and empty. You say, wow, pastor, that's really dark and depressing. Is that really how you feel about yourself? Yes, actually. That's reality. But it's not the whole story. There's more to reality than just my empty and twisted self. David says it this way, you are my help and my deliverer. O Yahweh, do not delay. You need to understand the Lord Himself, the God who made you, is your only hope. That's why I said we need to experience this kind of desperation. Because when you're convinced that you are corrupt and sinful, when you're convinced that you're unable to do anything of good and lasting value, when you're convinced that you can't deny who and what you are, but you're also equally convinced that indulging yourself leads to only greater emptiness and greater grief, then you can finally see that God offers hope. And it's only hope for those who are desperate enough to grab Him Take hold and never let go. You see, as long as you think you can handle things, as long as you think your problems aren't really that bad, at least not as bad as other people's, as long as you think, well, that you're not perfect, but you're probably good enough, then you are not desperate enough to pray like David is praying here. And you aren't even really ready to trust in the Lord to save you, to rescue you, 
to be your help and your deliverer. As long as you think you've still got options, then you can't turn to him and be saved. And so, I would put it this way, you ought to pray to God. You need to pray to him because he's your only hope. You need to see and know that He is the only way of salvation, the only hope you'll ever have. And when you see that, you'll pray like David is praying. You'll beg God to save you because you'll realize that short of that, you are done for. You're destroying your own life. You're rushing for the cliff that leads down into a drop into eternal damnation. And you're not struggling against it. You're rushing headlong for it. And the only way that you can escape it is if God plucks you out and takes you from it Himself. There is no other way out. And until you believe that and understand that, you can't pray like this. You need to see that He's your only hope. And when you see that, you pray. And you pray desperately because He's the only thing you've got. Now, I can say that this is true, not just for, for those of you here who may not know the Lord, who may not be believers, who may not be born again, but this is true just as much for us as Christians, if you're a Christian today. It's easy for us to become self-reliant and self-sufficient, but that doesn't work any better for us than it does for the sinner trying to save himself. You can't pray like this unless you're desperate for help and unless you've exhausted all other options. Now, I'm not saying that we should wait until things have gotten so bad that everything has fallen apart before we pray. What I'm saying is that you should know. If you're a born-again Christian, you ought to know that you never had any other options to begin with. That your physical need can only be met in Christ. That your emotional need can only be met in Christ. That your financial need can only be met in Christ. That your temptation, which always derails you, can only be overcome through Christ. That the person who always irritates you can only be loved through Christ. That the grief, which never really disappears, can only be endured through Christ. You see, we don't pray to Him because He makes us feel better. We don't pray to Him because He helps us cope with life's difficulties. We pray to God because He's the only way out. There isn't any other option. And your prayers ought to reflect that. There's another application that I want to make from this psalm today. And it's this. You ought to pray with passion because your needs are urgent. You ought to pray with passion because your needs are urgent. Now, <laughs> I think sometimes we read a passage like this psalm and we, we read something like this and immediately what we do is we reach into our bag of theological knowledge and we pull out some truths that help us kind of smooth over some of the rough edge that's on this psalm. David prays with a sense of extreme urgency here. He asks that God make haste and not delay. But when we read a passage of Scripture like this, sometimes in our minds, if not with our mouths, 
we, we correct David's bad theology. We say, well, he, he means well, but he's got, he's got some errors here we've got to correct. And we use our, our knowledge of the Bible to do that. We think to ourselves something like this. Well, if David were really trusting in God, he'd be more calm. He'd be more at peace. He would remember that God is sovereign and all-knowing and all-powerful, and he wouldn't worry so much about those things. He just seems a little bit on edge here. He needs to dial it back and tone it down. He needs to remember God's in control. Never mind. Never mind the fact that most of us, when we get into bad situations, resort immediately to worry and anxiety rather than to prayer. But, but let's not let our own personal failures get in the way of theologizing away a, a Bible passage, right? So we're pretty sure when we read this that if David really believed that God was eternal and infinite and sovereign, he wouldn't ask God to hurry. Instead, he would pray for God to respond in his own way and in his own time and everything would be fine. Because that's the theologically right way to do it, right? Now please don't misunderstand me. God is eternal. He's infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. He is sovereign. He knows our needs before we ask them, and He is always moving to care and protect and preserve His children. We really can rest in Him when life spins around us like a hurricane. But he never expects us to be anything other than human. There are times when life can get pretty desperate. There are things in life, as we experience it, that are important enough and urgent enough that we should pray like David is praying here. What are some of those things that should drive us to pray with this sense of urgency? Well, I have a whole list. I didn't include them all because I knew I wouldn't be able to speak about them. Let me just share with three of, three of them and I'll be done. We ought to pray urgently for our loved ones who are lost because death comes for each of us and there's no promise of tomorrow. This was reinforced to me this week several times. I found out about a, a man that I, I don't, didn't know well. I met him a few times. I saw him at the coffee shop that I like to go to in town. And he used to come in and sit at the coffee shop every morning. Passed away from complications from a surgery that he had. Everything seemed to be going well. Everybody expected him to be back at the coffee shop soon. He was in good spirits. He was getting ready to go home. I got a text saying he's gone. He's one of the five names that I put down on my list. Those of you who come on Wednesday nights who've been a part of the exchange with us, you know, we wrote down a list of five. He's one of my five. I never had a talk with him. I mean, we chatted a little bit, you know, things here and there. Never had a chat, never had a talk with him about where he stood with the Lord. And then I think, man, what a missed opportunity. There's some urgency. Because he's gone. And there's no more opportunity. There's some urgency because a 29-year-old mother of two passed away from a heart attack this week. David Ware's sister. There's some urgency because a family up in uh, Watertown was in a car wreck yesterday and lost two of their children. 
Another family from Lake Geneva was in a car wreck yesterday. I don't remember now the details of that. The mom passed away. There's urgency because we don't know how long anybody has. So we ought to pray urgently to the Lord to save our loved ones who are lost. We ought to pray urgently for Christians who are toying with sin. You know why? Because you know and I know the devastation that sin brings into our lives when we play around with it. And you see a Christian who's toying with it, who's thinking about it, who's just indulging a little bit here and there, who's starting to, starting to go that way, and you should, you should pray urgently for them. Because you know the cost that's going to have in their life. We ought to pray urgently for those who are bound as slaves to sin. And you know someone. If you yourself are not bound in some slavery to some sin, you know someone who is. I know in Sunday school you guys just started talking this week about addiction. I'm telling you, the rise in addiction in our society, and I'm not just talking about substance abuse, but there are the, the, the rise in addictions across the board in our society is unbelievable. Astronomical. And you can be addicted to literally anything. You know somebody. You know somebody who is bound as a slave to their sin. You ought to pray urgently. Why? Because there's only one way out of that kind of thing. There's only one way out for somebody who's bound in their sin. You know what it is? It's the grace of God. That's it. There's only one way to break those chains. God's grace. So you ought to pray urgently for them. There are things in our life, and there's a whole lot more. These are just a couple samples to give you ideas to think about it. There are a whole lot of things in your life, things that happen, needs, concerns that rise up, and they are urgent. Now, God's not in a hurry. I know that. But you're not God, and I'm not God. They're urgent to us. And we ought to pray Urgently, fervently. And even as we do it, trust God to act and worship His great name. That's what David does here. He gives us a great example of praying urgently and fervently. I hope you'll consider this week how you can pray, why you can pray. Embrace a little passion in your prayer life this week. Let's close with prayer together.